everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Connected Parenting. Today, I want to share an amazing interview I had on Smart Family Podcast with Dr. Meter. We talked about connecting, listening, mirroring with toddlers, teenagers, and even your partner. So it's full of parenting advice that every parent should hear. Enjoy. Welcome to the Smart Family Podcast, where we want to help you love being home. Here are your hosts, Dr. Rob Meter and Tony Newhoff. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Smart Family Podcast. It's just me, Dr. Rob Meter, on my own today. Tony is away, but we definitely did not want to miss an opportunity to interview a guest who's been on the show before, Jennifer Kalari. Now, if you've listened to episode 35, gosh, more than two years ago now, uh, we had a great conversation with Jennifer. She is such a voice for parents and so much insight in how to connect with your kids. Uh, Jennifer is all about reinforcing the relationship first and foremost, and how to manage all of the emotions and unpredictability of parenting. In fact, she tackles pretty well every issue that parents bring up in my pediatric mental health practice almost on a daily basis. So it's just great to talk to her and sort of pick her brain on these topics. For those of you who do not know Jennifer, she is the originator of the CALM technique, that's C-A-L-M, and we'll tell you in the episode what that stands for. And she is the founder of Connected Parenting. She is a child and family therapist, a practitioner, um, but also an author and sought-after speaker. In fact, I ran into her again at a conference recently that we both spoke at and knew we needed to do another episode together. So I was so glad that she agreed to join us today. And she currently spends most of her time in San Diego, which is where she joined us from today. So I have no doubt you'll love this. Um, so put the kids to bed or put your AirPods in or settle into this episode on your commute to work, hopefully sipping on a morning coffee and listen in on my conversation with Jennifer Colari. Jennifer, welcome back to the Smart Family Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. The last time we had you on was uh, episode 35, I believe, which was like almost over two years ago now. And uh, yeah, it's been a while. And uh, and then I saw you at a conference. Uh, we both spoke at a conference uh, not too long ago. And I said, love to have you back on again and uh, talk about parenting. Sounds good. It, it, in some ways, maybe nothing has changed, but in other ways, everything has changed. You know, that was uh, one year into a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and now we're sort of on the back end of that, I hope. And uh, so it'd be nice to catch up. Great. You've talked a lot to parents over the years. And uh, like I said, you know, in, in many ways, things are the same year to year, but in other ways they've changed. What are, what are parents coming to you for these days? And, and what, what do you find they're struggling with that's maybe particular to this yeah. current generation? You know what I would have to say? I, I feel like more parents are struggling with anxiety like their own anxiety, not just about their kids, although definitely about their kids, but I'm seeing a lot more moms and a lot of dads, a lot of dads who are just kind of struggling with anxiety, not necessarily knowing what it is. Lots of stuff coming up for them, feeling like they're kind of losing it. Um, and you know, there's been a, it's probably just as much education on how to help them feel better and ground themselves so they're not reacting so much to their kids and they're tending to themselves and doing a lot of self-care, which of course you need to be a better parent anyway, but I'm 100% seeing that. I mean, anxiety across the board with everyone more, but I would have to say with the parents, it's noticeable. Yeah. Do you think there's a more 
more pressure on parents these days. We talked recently to another guest on the show just about, you know, mom guilt and feeling like you need to keep up and there's all these things you need to do to to raise your kids now. Uh, do you feel that there's more pressure on parents to get it right? I do. I think there's that's been building for a long time and certainly pre-pandemic that was building. I think so, there's a couple of things. One, social media, I think, is bringing that to a, you know, a whole new level because everyone's watching other moms being great moms and doing mom things. And, um, you know, and I think that for the same reasons that for young girls, it stresses them out. And, you know, when they're watching everyone else seeming to have it all together, I think that's a piece of it. Um, I think, you know, having gone through not just, you know, the, the pandemic, but there's all kinds of stuff going on in the world right now. There's division, there's stress, people are a wreck just watching the news. So I think that's definitely adding to it. I feel a little bit like kids definitely, it's not the end of the world, we can make up for it, but lost some social time, lost some real, I mean, they maybe gained with more time at home and more time with their families, but they missed out on a lot of social stuff in that couple of years while COVID was happening. I definitely think that's a factor. So I just think it's a whole quagmire. It's just a combination of things um, that's kind of raised the ante, I think, for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I think I've seen that too. And, you know, even though maybe on paper or by statistics, the world is much safer than it used to be, I do feel like we're bombarded with um, a lot of like mainly bad news and worry about the next, yeah. you know, 10 years, 20 years. We hear a lot about climate change and war here. And yeah. it's, um, yeah, there's there's just lots for people to be aware of now that maybe they weren't aware of before. I think so too. And then the, the issue with social media, of course, is you get whatever you're, whatever you're looking at, you get more of you end up with this idea that that's all there is. I mean, if you really think about it, bad news, even the way that it looks now in the world is like a little blip, like think through your whole day or the last few years, you see people sharing and letting each other in and being kind to each other and family. Like generally what you see with your eyes is so different than what you see on social media or the news. And I think we all lose sight of that a little bit and it's, it gets right in your psyche. It really does. Right. Well, and that segues into my next question I had for you, because you talked about, you know, seeing with your eyes, in other words, seeing in real life and maybe connecting with people just day to day and not sort of being stuck in a social media bubble. So we'd love to talk to you just about connection because you talk a lot about that. And we like to move kind of in this show a lot from the science to the practical. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you talk about connecting and forming a bond with your child, Maybe tell us a bit more about the science behind connecting. Um, what is it that makes us want to connect? Absolutely. Well, not just want to, we have to, right? So think about it this way. In utero, a child, there's really just a rough map laid down for the brain. After that child is born, that's where most of brain development happens. So you really are um, the architect of your child's brain, really, you know, whatever experiences they have. Um, and so all of that connection, we're the only species that, you know, that are the that are babies don't just get up and walk around like they require a tremendous amount of love and care. And so oxytocin and serotonin and all these really powerful reward chemicals keep us very bonded. You know, this is why parents don't leave their screaming kids in the grass. It's like you love them more than you love yourself. And you have to because parenting is really hard. Right. So that and then all of those beautiful reward chemicals not chemicals not only keep the bond happening but it continuously bathes the child's brain in these beautiful stable chemicals and the calmer that child is the more 
safe that child feels, the more loved that child feels, the more the child can take risks and try things and move away from their parents and individuate and figure out who they are. And just so many biological reasons for it. Um, the other piece to keep in mind, and we can kind of weave this through, is not only the architect of your child's brain, but as a parent, you're actually the substitute frontal lobe. So not only do you have to do all this beautiful connecting, but you have to do a whole lot of correcting, right? And a whole lot of mitigating. And so the job of the frontal lobe is to inhibit and organize and prioritize and switch attention and you know take perspective and all of those things. So you have to connect at the same time you're, that you're saying, nope, you can't do that. And you got to go to bed and nope, you can't have another piece of cake. And so it gets really complicated. And I feel like in the parenting world, like anything else, it's swung. So for a while it was, you know, I don't probably 40 years ago now, it was all, you know, put the towel under the door and let your baby scream. It's fine. Um, and then it swung to like, don't put them down. Don't say no, don't argue with them. And I think certainly the connected parenting model is really about integration. It's a balance. It's about needing to have both of those things um, in the parent relationship. But the you know, connection is really, it is about mental health. It is about, it's about, it's everything really. Yeah, I, I was reading another author recently, and and she described how uh, babies are really borrowing our brain while they're growing up. You know, they they are. You mentioned just you know we're our, our substitute frontal lobe for our our babies, but you know that part is not developed at all when they're born. It is it, you know they have their brainstem and they have the stress brain and the emotional brain sort of starting to develop, but that that thinking part of their brain, obviously that's not there for babies and they borrow hours. Yeah, at eight, it's not fully there. At 12, it's not fully, even at 16, it's not fully there. I mean, you can back up and do less and less of that as your parent, but you are a prosthetic frontal lobe. You really, truly are. And that's why six-year-olds don't have apartments, right? <laughs> They're not paying a mortgage. They're not going to work. Like they really need you to do all of that regulating and organizing and pacing for them. And their job is to freak out and go, you're mean. No. Now, in a minute, so and so's parents never do that. That's just, you know, sadly, you've got to do the connecting. But if your kid's not mad at you, at least some of the time, you're not being a very good frontal lobe. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Now, you already alluded a little bit to sort of the 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 core of what you talk a lot about, about in connected parenting, which is CALM, C-A-L-M. Yeah. Um, we did talk about that last time on the show, but I think it'd be great if you could just kind of recap what CALM stands for, and um, and and just for our listeners who maybe have not heard that episode. Of course. So the CALM technique is really a way that I've kind of broken down deep connection. And it, it's funny because it's one of those things we think we're really good at, but then we're not as good at it as we think we are, right? So, and this is actually borrowed from a type of therapy, type of therapy called self-psychology, which is not very well known. A lot of people don't know about it. And it's a technique called mirroring where you're really attuning and deeply connecting to the other person. It doesn't have to have to be your child. It can be your husband, your wife, your neighbor, your co colleagues. It's a bit of a superpower. Um, it's, it, you know, it's sort of deep listening and how to use language and words and connection and body language to um, really connect on a deep level so that you have a moment of deep connection that you literally feel in your heart. It's a moment of brain heart coherence actually. And that's where oxytocin and opiates and endorphins release. Those are beautiful reward chemicals that strengthen the immune system, speed up neuroplasticity, um, help with emotional resilience, 
you name it, right? It, it blocks cortisol, huge, huge thing. And you get the bounce back as the parent or the person who's you know offering the technique. So the four things you're going to do when you're using the calm technique is you're going to connect that seat. This is where you take your agenda. Are you kidding me? Or don't talk to me like that or whatever it is. And you just park it aside. It gets to come back because you're frontal lobe. But you're sort of using your face, your body, everything to take a moment to, to understand versus being understood. And that's kind of the secret sauce right there with any conversation you have with anybody. If you step into a conversation wanting to be understood, you're going to have a problem. If you step into a conversation wanting to understand, you're going to start on a much better foot. So that's the connection part. Um, and you're going to take your agenda and make sure it's parked. So A is the, is for affect matching. So this is where the look on your face needs to closely match the look on the person's face that you're using the technique on. Not exactly, because that's weird, but enough that if they're sad, you're looking sad, not like, oh, not this again. Or, you know, if they're saying something that then they're little and it's cute, but they're sad, it sh that should not show up on your face. It really needs to be a neurological match. And it's through that neurological match that the mirror neuron cells in the brain stimulate and release oxytocin. Um, and then you've got the L, this is the listening part. So this is when you, this is where you can paraphrase, you can summarize, you can clarify, and you can wonder out loud all with the affect and your agenda part. And we can go through an example if you want. And when you've pulled all that off, um, which is, you know, easier, easier said than done, um, you're, that's the M and that's the mirroring. And you just, it just with practice, it just gets easier and easier and better and better. And you just sort of incorporate it into your being. It's incorporated into how you all people and then it gets easier and easier when you really need it with your kids yeah so my sense is that these elements kind of blend and flow together um you know in a, in a much more natural way it's not like a parent is kind of walking through them all kind of in sequence yeah necessarily an integrated approach right so and you think of it so maybe it's good to take an example you know, use an example so if you have a child who let's say they didn't get invited to a birthday party eight or nine. And it was one of those situations where, you know, invitations got handed out at school kind of stealth, but not really. And kids figured out pretty quickly they weren't invited and they come home so upset. So a very typical response would be not to connect first, but to immediately try to soothe or fix. Right. So we often get into cheerleading mode. That's ridiculous. And I'm going to call that mother and how would they, I'm so upset that that happened. And, you know, that's okay. We'll have your cousins over. We'll have your cousins over and we'll do this. And we'll do this. So you sort of hijack the whole thing to fix it because, and that's well-meaning as parents, we do love our kids, but it's really hard for us to watch them sad and their sadness is overwhelming to us. And our immediate instinct is to soothe and fix. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's appropriate, it's not disproportionate. And it's not the first thing you do. The first thing you have to do is allow your child to feel what they're feeling, know that you're okay with what they're feeling and that you can tolerate what they're feeling, sit in that space with them so they can actually metabolize and alchemize and let that emotion flow through them and then out of them instead of get stuffed down somewhere, right? So if we get too worked up and upset about it, then either our child goes, ooh, this is worse than I thought, or... They're like, oh, look how upset my mom or dad is about this. I can't share this with them. It upsets them too much. And either one of those messages or both are not great for kids. So that's kind of typically what we do. If the kid comes home and they didn't get invited and they're storming around and they're mad, we usually try to correct the behavior before we even deal with, you know, with, with what's wrong because you can't behave that way just because that happened to you, but that kind of stuff. 
So the clown technique really pulls you in to understanding first and to connection first. So the first thing you do, as hard as this is, and as counterintuitive as this feels, you've got to say, what? Are you kidding me? They tried to pretend they weren't giving the invitations, but you saw it. And then you heard so-and-so talk about it. And you were sure you were going to get invited to that party. What was that like? You have to dare to be there. You have to dare to stay in that moment. Show your kids that sadness is a thing, that it is a natural, normal feeling. You can handle your child's sadness. You can handle your own sadness. You can give them a hug. You can hold hands. You can let them cry. You can be present with them. And after they felt it a little bit, um, then they can move forward. So that that would be the first thing you do. And and the affect matching, I'm going to call that mother and this isn't, wait, because that, you know, that's going to come later. And how you use the language piece, the L piece. So what I just did there as I summarized, and yeah, I could say, you know, this happened. Didn't this happen like three weeks ago too? Was so-and-so's party? This is the second one now. So a summary. I could um, paraphrase. So if the child said, they're so mean and why would they do that? And I never get invited to anything, even though that may not be true, it may feel true. You say, well, oh my gosh, so you just feel like these things just keep getting handed out and you're never included. No sarcasm, just real, right? I can I can wonder out loud. So maybe they didn't care about that kid that, that much. Maybe they weren't that upset, but they were upset about something else. So you mirror the fact that they're upset about this party and then you wonder out loud, but you know what I'm really wondering? If this is on top of the play date that you didn't get invited to yesterday with your best friend, right? So you just sort of help them knit together and figure out what's all with you know, all the elements that's going on in their life. Um, get them all, clarify. Oh, clarify. So maybe they're not upset. Um, so that that would be that would be clarifying, I guess, the one that I just did. Um, phrasing, wondering out loud. Yeah, that's kind of the different ways you can do it. And of course, it sounds easy, but takes a lot of practice. Yeah. And it takes, you have to make the time for it and, you know, you can't just dismiss or brush things off. It, it does take some intentionality, doesn't it? It does. it does. And it, and remember too, that it's counterintuitive. There, there will be no part of you that is going to feel like going right towards your child's pain or frustration or anger. Your, your instinct is going to be to inhibit it or distract them or organize it or fix it. Um, and there's a time for that, but just not right at the beginning. Yeah. Like for me, for example, as a dad, it tends to be sort of, you know, conflict avoidant. I tend to say, okay, you know, let's I kind of minimize it. I don't want to go there. Um, let's talk about something else. That's, you know, distraction is kind of a technique that I would use, but uh, that yeah. um, might be okay in the short term, but that's not going to solve things long-term or help in the long term. But you really, it's funny because we're teaching all the time as parents, all the time, right? So if that's a pattern that we, and I'm similar to, I don't I, I mean, I don't enjoy conflict at all. Um, and I always want to fix. I always want to soothe. I know that's my go-to, but I, you know, I've made sure to make a point of actually going right uh, to the pain, going right for it and not in an overly dramatic, what? You didn't get invited. This is terrible. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about matching the affect and being prepared to stay there. And, it, you know, for parents who are similar to you, you don't have to lie your kid down and do an hour of therapy session. You can literally make two or three statements that really capture it. And honestly, that's all you need sometimes. And they're like, yep. And they move on, right? It's it's often goes away faster and you deal with it faster doing that than trying to minimize or distract. Yeah, it's, it sounds like one of the keys is prioritizing the relationship first and foremost, not being afraid of emotions because some of us are. Uh, we didn't grow up with um, you know, our emotions being recognized perhaps or validated. Yes. And yeah. so uh, this, this, I think, really allows for 
emotional development, emotional connection that helps the whole relationship. That's such a good point that you just made, because that is really what parenting is about. Too. We only we can only come into this parenting agreement and arrangement with what, with what we were given. So we were given patterns and programs from our own parents and from our own culture and history. And we come, you know, sort of with, with that in our handbag. And that's, that's all we got, really. So I think one of the biggest things is to help our kids with emotional literacy. So they learn that there's no such thing as a bad emotion. That emotions are information and they're there to tell you something and they're meant to be felt. And it's interesting because we talked, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation about how so many adults and particularly dads I'm seeing in my practice that are really struggling. And it's because they had to be strong, you know, make the money and keep everyone together and organize everything and not show any weakness and not fall apart, you know, all of that stuff. And then what did they do? They stuffed it down and stuffed it down and stuffed it down and stuffed it down. And then finally, when their kids are a little older and you're not in crisis mode all the time, it comes out, it comes out and it can come out in physical ways. It can come out with anxiety. It can come out with being very teary and sad and like, what's going on with me? But emotions are things and they're not gone just because you stuff them in some room and slam the door shut, right? So helping our kids, knowing that about ourselves, but also raising our kids to understand how to feel emotions, that emotions can flow in and out of you. And that's important. Jennifer, that example you just gave us, I mean, that was for kind of like a smaller child. I, I suspect that might not go over too well, say with a teenager. Any advice for how you might work this with a teenager or use calm with a teenager? Absolutely. So it's interesting when I wrote the book, I have a second book, which is about teenagers. And I sort of started to really work on this with teens. I thought the same thing in the beginning, that it might not work so well with teenagers, that it would be rejected or it would work better with little kids. I found the opposite is true. Actually, this is like teen whispering. The only thing a teenager wants really, aside from independence and sovereignty, is to be heard, right? Is to be understood. That is the prime message that they are driving all the time. And as a parent, our primary operating principle is safety and security. How do I keep you safe? You're not old enough yet. And how do I know there's you know going to be an adult there and all of that stuff? So you end up having this really um, pretty dynamic uh, conflict over a lot of things during the teenage years. And so when you approach with the same exact formula, you just might not have quite as much affect with a little kid. Like with a little, little kid, you're going to have like bigger facial expressions. But with a teenager, and the truth is it it works, it is teen whispering. It's it's magic. It really, really is. And it's probably the only way to talk to a teenager, honestly. Um, and what I would make sure of is, you know, when you're having this conversation, we get so triggered by teenagers' eye rolls and you don't understand and you're crazy. And, you know, where we go is I drive you everywhere. I do everything for you. I make sure you've had good food. I've helped you with your homework. I buy everything. I'm an ATM. I'm a taxi. Like I'm everything. I'm your Uber driver. Um, And they're being rude. And you're just so mm, triggered by this. And we immediately step in that landmine. Don't talk to me like that. You're so rude. I'm not going to get anything when you talk to me that way. And then off you go. Right. So the first part, which is the connecting before correcting, which is the real um, parking your agenda. How dare you speak to me that way? Blah, blah, blah. Park it. You're still there frontal lobe. You're just less of one because they can do more things on their own. You really step in and seek to understand. You really jump into their to their world. So let's say it's a party they want to go to. We'll use party as the theme. 
and you're thinking there's not gonna be an adult there. They're not quite old enough to go. I'm not happy with this. Um, and they are beside themselves. It's the party of the year and everybody's going and I'm not going to have any friends if I can't go. And often we like to temper that. Oh, you know, I thought that too when I was 15 and there'll be other parties. And, you know, I, you, we promised we were going to see your grandparents that weekend and you're not going to that party and you'll be fine. And you can see how that just wouldn't work. So you have to step first into tell me about this party and no sarcasm. Like this has to be genuine. Kids will pick up on this too, but teenagers, especially if they feel like you're doing it to get them to shut up or to get over it or to get on with it in a smoother way, it won't work. You literally have to teleport yourself into their 14 or 15 year old mind, conjure up how it felt to be that age yourself when you thought the boy you liked was going to be there and your parents said, no, whatever, like try to find the realness in it for you. And then you're like, okay, tell, I, I'm having a hard time with this, but you are telling me this is the party of the year. You're really sure this is going to affect your social life. If you can't go, tell me why. So you actually stay in that place with them. You're using the, you know, you're summarizing, you're clarifying, you're doing all of that stuff. And as they feel heard, again, just a few statements, they'll start to calm down. And what's actually happening in both of those examples, actually, is oxytocin is starting to release. You're now having an oxytocin-based conversation instead of an adrenaline-based conversation, right? So you're biochemically changing both of your uh, your bi biochemistry so that you can have a little calmer conversation about it. And then you can move to, okay, how can this be a yes? What needs to happen? What things do we need to put in place so that you can go? Or if you know they absolutely can't go, you I would be mad too. You know what? If I was your age, I'd be furious. But that's how it's going to be. And I love you enough for you to be mad at me, but there's no parents at that party. Or we promised your grandparents we're going to whatever this weekend be as mad as you need to be at me. I get it. I was 15 once too. Right. And then it then it usually just kind of when once the teenager knows it's it's not movable anymore and they were heard, they usually stomp away. And then more often than not, they come back downstairs and they're kind of mad, but they've gotten over it, really. Yeah. Yeah. My my sense is that this technique that you're describing really only works in person. Maybe maybe over FaceTime, but definitely not via text. Even with lots of emojis. What do you think? Well, it's really interesting they say that it actually can work spectacularly by text. So let me. The reason why, uh, and it, you're right, because it doesn't have the visual. It doesn't have the expressions. But you can you can communicate that with words. Words have immense meaning and energy and vibration and they speak to the the limbic brain words like the the vibration of the words and i don't mean it in a new way do i mean literally like if i say if i say ugly to you there's a little feeling in your body if i say chubby baby there's a little feeling in your body so that can actually be transmitted through words for sure the advantage is you don't have all the other stuff going on the, mm, and, the, mm, and the mm, like all the eye motions. You don't have to deal with their eye rolling, their huffing, their rudeness, which very much triggers us. So it's actually very clean. Um, and then you have time. You can take a few minutes and how does that sound and read it back and make sure you've written, you know, and I get it. You're furious at me. This you've made it very clear to me. This party is incredibly important. No wonder you're so mad. You can absolutely do it. And I, it's funny to say that because I actually sometimes recommend doing that with teenagers because you don't have all of that frenetic, electric, crackly energy 
it's an amazing way to handle things, actually, ironically. Okay, great. Well, there you go. I learned something new. And you're right. Like, there is something about the pause that texting automatically puts in there. And something that we probably should do more of, even in real life conversations, is just Absolutely. slow things down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, where you are right, though, is if you get into this rapid fire, you know, I'm not answering you if it's all caps, and you end up in this crazy vortex that can just spin right out of control the same way a live conversation can. So to your point, take a minute, like, don't just answer it right away, write it and go, if I was 15, how would I see that? Mm, I think I'm going to change that word. Uh, like take your time. Right. And then if your te teenager sends you something horrible, don't just fire. That's it. Then you're not going. That's the last time I'm going to do anything. Don't do that. Take a minute, breathe, anchor yourself, look at baby pictures of them, do something to get you in a place where you can now respond to your teenager instead of react to your teenager. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other thing that's lost, of course, is, is the nuances. Uh, I mean, sometimes my, one of my teenagers reads me a text from a friend that she's interpreted a certain way. And then all I do is I read that text back to her a with voice. a different tone of voice. And suddenly she goes, oh yeah, maybe they weren't being mean. Maybe they were just being sarcastic or funny, you know? Exactly. Exactly. That's really important. So that, I mean, that, that's true, but you also miss the kind of the, the, the nuances that really are there in our Right. So it, it, I wouldn't recommend it all the time. And it's the only way you communicate, but don't rule it out as, as something that can be positive. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. I'd love to get to some practical things that parents struggle with that I hear a lot in my practice. Um, I'm sure it, our listeners could come up with about 20 different scenarios from where they experience a breaking connection. And often it's when kids are asked to transition. For example, going to school in the morning, turning off a video game, going to bed. Um, it often is in association with a parent saying, no, you can't do that. And then they come, you know, wondering why their child is so defiant. So why are transitions so hard for kids? Why is their default sort of no? Yes. Okay. And for some kids, there are children that are that flow a little better through transitions. They do exist. But the majority of kids will push back. And if your child is a big feeler, if they have ADHD, if they're on the spectrum, um, if they have anxiety, they're, you're going to have even more pushback. Or, or if they want what are what I call a gladiator kid, if they're just kind of temperamentally kind of sassy, like they're just sort of built to push back, you'll often know that kids like that just literally have a reflex. They say no before you've even finished the sentence, what you're asking for, right? It's almost a reflex for them. So having said that, um, the, the big reason is that is an executive functioning skill, right? Transitioning requires many complex parts of the brain. And in a very primal way, if you are doing something, whether it's, I don't know, you're on a video game or you're on your phone or you're just staring out the window and somebody says, hey, it's time to move. There is a very, there's primal program, cram, programming in there that says you're safe. If you move, how do you know it's going to be just as safe, right? This is not the frontal lobe that's doing. This is the midbrain. This is the safety and security system of the brain. So there's a built-in thing, especially with kids who are smaller and shorter and need us for everything. And, you know, we protect them and we keep them safe. Anytime you ask a kid to move, there will be a biological pushback because the brain is saying, well, no, 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 you're good. Like, you're good. You don't know if moving is going to make you unsafe. So you're going to have that. That's that's 
thousands of years old in our DNA. You're going to have that. Then the brain's ability to actually pan back and go, wait a second, it's a birthday party that I'm going to, or I'm going to school and I don't feel like going to school, but yesterday I had a great day at school, or I have to go to school, or um, it's gymnastics. And you know what? I don't want to move right now, but I love gymnastics. That's all executive functioning. That is higher order thinking. And that's a complex process in the brain. So the first thing you want to do is you want to front load. You want to give kids a window of time. Kids are not going to get up and follow you outside like little ducks. That doesn't happen. They're going to go, I will in a minute. Leave me alone. I don't want to go. That's what they're going to do, right? And you almost have to expect it. So step one is expect it. If you expect your kids to follow you out the door and go, oh, great, you're going to be upset. You're going to get disappointed. So prepare yourself for this sticky, you know, kind of movement that's going to happen. Like sometimes, That gap between what you expect and what's actually going to happen is responsible for a lot of our frustration as parents, right? Understanding they don't have a frontal lobe yet. So it's your job to get them kind of ready to make that shift can help a lot. Then you go in and you say, don't just say, you have to leave in 15 minutes, let's go. You walk in and you go, what are you watching? Oh, cool. Oh, is that you? That's you on the screen? Oh, that's your score? Whoa. And then let them tell you about it or let them sit down and watch the, the program for a second that they're watching. Or if they're building something, do it with them. And don't do it when you have two minutes to go. Do it 15 minutes before, 20 minutes before it's time to go. And then you connect. Oh, I get it. I get why you don't want to go right now. I wouldn't want to either. It's so fun. But here's the thing. Get your brain ready. Um, you get, get your brain ready. Do what you have to do in the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes. This is great for video games. And I'll come back five minutes before and then we'll go. And I believe in you. I know you got this. So you drop in that little message of confidence and you have this little window. Most of the time that will help a lot and stay in motion. Don't stay at the door going, hurry up, come on, move, go, get in the car, head out the door. If you live in an apartment, stand in the hallway. Like don't stand there expecting them to move because they're going to have this automatic pushback and not want to move. So if you keep the flow, they'll follow you. And for the kids that time goes by and they have complete time blindness and they don't follow you, you say, hey, you know what? You got five minutes to get yourself going. If you can't get yourself going, then you're going to lose 15 minutes of your video game time or whatever tomorrow. They'll forget all about it. The next day they'll say, hey, can I have my iPad? And you go, yeah, in 15 minutes. In 15 minutes, you can have it because it's, I, mean, I want to help you learn how to transition because we were late for soccer yesterday, right? Again, very neutral. I'm not threatening. I'm not screaming and yelling. And you're going to have to do it a few times until they realize, oh, that costs me something when I get stuck in time, right? And that can really, really help. So those windows, I have something, I don't know if we have time to talk about it today, but you could find it on my, I have a whole podcast about it called Morning Windows, which actually helps you divide the morning into like 20 minute segments. Um, absolutely helps. It's huge. Um, and then expect the protest. If you have a kid who's kind of feisty and sassy, anytime you want to do so, your tutor's coming or we got to go, like you're going to get, you're going to get this whole reaction. If you step in and get involved in that reaction, they're going to get what they were actually looking for, which is an adrenaline boost. They're looking for a kick up so their frontal lobe can run so they can actually like do that operation of switching to the next thing, right? They're going to start regulating themselves based on us. So don't get sucked into the pro, pro into the protest. Don't you talk to me like that. You don't have to like, so they do that. And you say, you know what, we're going, get your head around it. 
I'll see you in the car in 10 minutes. If you don't, here's what's happening. And then I believe in you. I know you walk away. And then when they do it, which they will most of the time, don't go, oh, look at you. The car. Don't do that. Just be like, awesome. Way to go. And then later you go, you remember this morning when it was time to go and you were really nasty to me? Let's talk about some other ways that that can go because I can't, that's not going to work for me. And if you continue to choose that as an option, then you're telling me that, you know, you, you need my help with this and that we'll probably have to put some consequences in place. Right. It sounds like you're kind of using like a, almost like a preemptive calm approach. You're connecting, you're kind of getting into their space in their world. You know, you're, you're trying to, you're just kind of working on the relationship because you anticipate because, because kids want things to kind of stay the same, you know, they're most comfortable if things happen as they predict uh, and as they, as they expect, um, that if you kind of introduce some new transition, it's, there's going to be some pushback, like you said, biologically. So kind of preemptively expecting that mm-hmm. and using some calm, C-A-L-M, yes. uh, might yes. help to uh, make that go smoother. Absolutely. And listen, as we're talking about this, it, this sounds great, but there's going to be times where you're going to, you can use the calm technique. You're going to do everything right. You're going to stay neutral. You're going to prepare yourself and you're still going to get you know, a whole thing. And you can always repair what, what I want people in a, you're going to get better at this as you use it. And then let's say it just all was a disaster and you started yelling and it didn't work and everyone's in tears and you're mad at yourself. You can always go back and go, Oh, remember this morning when I asked you to, I didn't really think about how you were in the middle of that video game, or you were trying to tell me and I didn't listen. Like you can always go back and it's never too late. And you still get that same amazing um, flood of reward chemicals that are really, really healthy, good for mental health, good for emotional regulation, good for brain development and learning, um, all of the good for you. you. They still get it, even in the repair state. They get it. I want to shift a little bit to a different kind of transition because, um, you know, we just talked now about how kids don't like to transition day to day. But I also see a lot of parents who have difficulty with the developmental transitions that their children go through and kind of being able to match those transitions. And I think a lot of it has to do with a loss of sense of control, a loss of influence as our kids get older and their own brain develops, like we just talked about. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what advice do you have, Jennifer, for, for parents who think their kids are growing up too fast? This is a, such an interesting topic and it's very nuanced, right? Because on the one hand, kids do grow up really fast now, right? They're exposed to all kinds of things we had no idea existed. And on the other hand, they're so much younger and more immature than we were. Like at not, I'm not saying you should do this with your parents, but I grew up in Toronto as a kid and at 12, we went down to the Eaton Center on the subway. <laughs> like, and we had no cell phones, we had no nothing. Like, um, and I'm not saying you, you know, to do that, but in some ways we had so much more independence. Um, you know, we stayed home a lot more on our own. We walked ourselves to school. You know, we had a very different experience growing up. So we actually, um, it, it, it might have even been smoother for our parents to see us move through those transitions. So there's a lot of reasons why that's true, but I see that a lot with parents too, where I feel like the parent has the leg, the kid has moved forward, but the parent has cut up. You know, I don't know, their son is like 13 and they ruffle him on the head and give him a hug. And he's like, oh my God, what are you doing? Let's stop it. My friends are there. And it's, it happens so fast sometimes that it, it literally feels like it's overnight. Um, and it does trigger exactly what you say. It triggers like, oh, my baby doesn't need me anymore. 
or, whoa, I'm not ready for this. And it, especially when you have, you're with the first child, it gets a little easier with your second and third because you kind of run through it a little bit. There's all, there's all kinds of phases here. There's dating and there's bedtimes and there's going to parties and there's driving and like there's just all this stuff happening. So I think the most important thing is to really know that as soon as your child becomes a teenager, when they're moving into those teen years, they're going to be operating from a, a sovereignty and independence time. They always do a little bit as kids, but it's going to be very dramatic as teenagers. And I'll give you the, and you know this, but I want to give the absolute biological reason why. Like nature literally programs teenagers so that they don't want to listen to their parents. Like literally their parents' voice can annoy them. Their footsteps. I, I work with so many young kids, especially like 12, 13 year old girls, for example, who say, I love my mom. It's usually the moms. I love my mom. I really do. But she makes me so mad. Her voice makes me mad. She hasn't, she doesn't even open it to say anything yet. And I'm mad. And I, I why that's happening to me. So here's why it's happening. And it can be very devastating for the parents, an awful feeling. But the truth is, nature wants teenagers not to listen to their parents. So they travel over to another village or community so they can listen to those parents so they can actually stay in that village and spread their genetic seed all over the place. Like literally, that's the reason why, right? So you're, you're dealing again, once again, with this super powerful biological programming. So we're these sophisticated conscious beings, but we all live in a monkey body, basically. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. So what you're saying is that, you know, there's in teenagers, especially there's this movement towards disconnecting in a way and seeking new connections. And uh, I think as parents, yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's always the way that I feel like parents tend to lag a bit behind that transition, not so much the other way where we might be pushing our kids out the nest, so to speak. It, it, it seems to be more. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Well, um, Jennifer, for kids, for parents who are just starting out, because we talked a lot about teenagers, but let's say parents who maybe who don't have children yet, a couple mm -hmm. that's thinking about it. Um, if there's if there's anything that you know they want to get things started off on the right foot, what's what's maybe one thing that what's maybe one myth you want to bust? Uh, for a couple that uh, that wants to get it right and maybe not make some mistakes that they have seen their parents make or that they have seen others make? Uh, oh, so that's such a beautiful question. I'm going to answer that in a few different ways. But the first thing, the most myth I would want to bust is that you can be a perfect parent. Okay, sure. Yeah, perfect. Like you, you will be an, a perfectly imperfect parent. You're going to be who you are you don't have to parent exactly like someone else. And even if you're, you know, if you're parenting in a couple, you don't have to parent exactly the same way. You have to get along to an extent and you have to be sort of a united front, but it's really okay to have different uh, personalities and bring different things to your kids. So you're never going to be a perfect parent. You're going to be a perfectly imperfect parent. So that would be the first one. The second thing I would say to you is long before you have kids, really bring the calm technique into your life. Like when I, I teach this at law firms and organizations and agencies, like hospitals, I, I do this with doctors and nurses, you don't have to be a parent, but how getting good at this, getting great at this long before you're a parent. So that is something that your own brain has built neural pathways for these, these, this technique flows freely out of your you know, off your tongue, your first instinct is to like calm yourself down before you react like that will be gold 
for you. So, like, so even using it with your partner, let's say, or with your colleagues yeah. at work, with fellow adults is what you're talking about. Customers, use it with the nasty neighbor, use it with the person at Starbucks who's cranky, whatever. Bring it, bring it. It's it's much more of a philosophy than a strategy. And so bring it into your worldview on it, the ways that you... The, I can't explain to you what you'll get back doing this. Like the, you won't be so afraid of conflict. You'll be able to be, you know, calm and heard in conversations. You'll, it is a superpower and it is a, it's a communication skill. So who doesn't need that? That's great advice. So what you're saying is if you're a new parent, uh, start doing this with everybody around you so that it becomes natural when your child grows up. And then of course, It'll be natural for them so that down the road when they become parents or they're working with colleagues or they're, they're in a marriage, yes, they I love can use this. It really, and it's, you know, it, I think this is such an important point. Like not only will this help you in all areas of your life, but the truth is this is the gift that your children will give their children. Like you don't have to teach your kids how to mirror. When you raise them this way, they will intuitively incorporate this in their being. You will see them doing it with their friends. You will see that them doing it with teachers. You'll see them doing it with coworkers and bosses and professors. Like it's, it is truly a gift that is, you know, will generationally be passed on for sure. Yeah. Well, I think the world would be a much better place if we all um, being, practiced being calm and doing calm exactly like you're, you're you've described. So, thanks for. Um, for, for sharing that all with us and uh, in such practical ways, especially for parents, of course, because uh, yeah. that's, I think, the, the primary relationship we'd love to get right and uh, to do the best we can. And I love what you had to say about not being a perfect parent. That's been repeated by so many guests on our show. And uh, in a way, we're, I think we're telling all parents who are listening to this podcast, just relax, be yourself, chill, make, make, make some you know in, intentional changes maybe to how you interact and communicate exactly like what we've been talking about. Um, but if you get it wrong and if you make a mistake, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, parenting from a place of love, not fear. Yes. Yeah. Great. Well, um, what, just to wrap up, Jennifer, what resources do you offer or, and which ones do you recommend, uh, to families that you see who want to learn more about connecting with their kids? We've got all kinds of services for people. And, and it's funny because you asked me at the beginning, like what I'm also seeing in with parents, but you know, one of the things we're seeing is that people who, who do want support, who do want therapy or get their child into you know a program or an agency or work with a family therapist, it's it's really difficult out there to get like things are just jammed and there's weight loss and you know, wait lists and it's crazy. So we've really been thinking a lot about that at Connect Parenting. So we have so we have a couple of things. One, I've got my podcast, which is absolutely free, and I go pretty deep in my podcast. Um, really do share strategies and cover all these parenting issues. So if you really can't, you know, afford anything at all, that's out there. It's out there. There's my books also. So I have two books, Connected Parenting, How to Raise a Great Kid. And the teen one is You're Ruining My Life, but not really. And then we have a whole team of therapists. We work with people from all over the world. We have an office in Toronto, but also in San Diego. And we do most of our work, some of it's in person, but a lot of it's online. So you can access one of our parenting coaches and therapists. We have two, actually three. So we have online courses, which are really affordable. So if you're waiting for services and you know, you're on a wait list somewhere, that's a great program to go through. And it's really affordable. And often insurance companies will cover that by the way. Uh, 
So that one is all online and it's, and you own it for life. I felt very strongly that I didn't want it to disappear after 60 days or 90 days or whatever, because you're a parent for life. So you have that it's yours. Um, the other version of that course, and it's all on demand, there's a live piece where there's a Facebook group where I interact with everyone and answer questions and often do video answers and audio answers um, and written answers too. And then there's also a monthly coaching call, which is actually a lot of fun because they're literally people from, I don't know how many different countries. And it's so awesome to hear everybody asking the same questions and going, oh my God, that's my kid. And it doesn't matter what corner of the earth you're on. Everybody's, you know, dealing with the same thing. So that's really fun. And then most recently, we have our family success program, which is a little more integrated where it's the coursework. Um, I think it's six sessions with a with a connected parenting practitioner who's kind of right there for you as you go through it. Also text support. So if your kid's flipping out and having a bird, not necessarily at two in the morning or something, but within reason, we'll try to answer pretty quickly and help you through it in a while it's happening. Um, and I think that's, oh, we also have our village, which is uh, also very affordable. It's a place where I think it's once a week. Parents can meet and work with a connected parenting coach or practitioner and practice the techniques we were talking about today and get lots of parenting help and, and guidance. And I think that's everything. Oh, and the mental health comedy podcast. I was going to ask about that. So you, you that's still going as well? Still going. Yeah, I co-host that with Ed Krasnick, who's a comedian, and we just have different entertainers come on and talk about their mental health. And because mental health is a practice, each episode, we, we, we share skills, like actual practical things you can do to improve your mental health. Yeah, and what a way to destigmatize mental health is is just to have fun with it and um, and learn at the same time. Yep, exactly. Okay, I love it. Any good parenting book that you've read recently that you might recommend to others? Um. Oh my gosh, there's quite. A, I haven't read a lot of parenting books lately, but there's lots of other books that I've read. But I think I love Gabor Mate's "Hold On to Your Kid." I love that book with Gordon Newfeld. I think that's a great one. Um, oh, I put him on the spot here. I can't think of my. That's okay. That's okay. But he's just also come up with another book called The Myth of Normal, which was really good. Yes, yes. The Myth of Normal is fantastic. Great. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, so great to talk to you again. Maybe we'll run into each other again at some point uh, down the road. And uh, we'd love to hear more from you then. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, there you go. As promised, another great conversation. I wish we had an hour more in that conversation. It feels like we really just got our feet wet on some of these amazing topics. Hopefully it'll inspire you to learn more and to start practicing being calm, C-A-L-M. That's connecting, affect matching, listening, and mirroring, uh, which we delved into more in this episode. In fact, I love how Jennifer promotes the idea of not being afraid of the emotional communication. I think that's what really stood out for me today. So cool. And how young kids really, they communicate primarily through those emotions because their frontal lobes are not developed yet. It makes just so much sense. They literally have to borrow the developed parts of our brain to regulate themselves. So I I loved kind of seeing the relationship from that perspective. If you want to learn more about this, check out Jennifer's book called Connected Parenting and her website, which has a whole bunch of resources. It's called connectedparenting.com. So check those out. Well, that's it for now. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast. And join us again next time on the Smart Family Podcast, where it is our aim to help you love being home.